0: You're listening to Evidence-Based IHP, the podcast that draws connections from research to practice. Hey there, listener. Amanda and Rachel here. It's been a while since our last episode. We went on a brief summer hiatus, but we're back with a brand new and in some ways timely interview.
1: We interviewed DNP student, now alumnus, Pauline Clark, a nurse manager at Spaulding Hospital in Cambridge, about her DNP project. DNP stands for the Doctor of Nursing Practice Degree. For this project, she completed a qualitative study of her staff's experiences working through the pandemic as a COVID unit, revealing the many ways in which the pandemic affected them.
0: When we recorded this interview a few months ago, we hoped, like we're sure all of you did, that the pandemic would have subsided by now and things would feel more normal. However, as we are recording this introduction, hospitals in some parts of the country are once again overwhelmed with COVID cases. Health professionals are suffering from burnout in record numbers, and still there are folks refusing to take the vaccines, despite full FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine and more approvals expected soon.
1: We hope that you have already been vaccinated. If not, hearing Pauline's account of what it was like for herself and her many dedicated selfless staff will encourage you to do your part to stop the spread of COVID-19. If you haven't been vaccinated yet, there is a link in the show notes to the Massachusetts VaxFinder website. If you're not in Massachusetts, we encourage you to visit your state's website to find out what vaccine resources are available to you.
0: If you're not web savvy, give your public library a call. They not only will know how you can make an appointment to get vaccinated, they might even have clinics at the library itself.
1: Healthcare workers have sacrificed so much for us. Please do your part to keep them safe and healthy by getting vaccinated.
0: The paper we discussed in this interview with Pauline is not yet published. Also, there is no bonus discussion at the end of the episode because we didn't want to trim Pauline's interview any more than necessary. It's that good.
1: And now here's our interview with Pauline. Hi, Pauline. Welcome to the EBIHP podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join this program. Um, I kind of thought that once I was done with the DNP and did my project that it would be all over. So this is interesting and I I thank you for inviting me.
1: Thank you. We are very lucky to have you here to share your experience and really excited to hear everything that you have to share with us. So let's start off by just having you introduce yourself to our audience, telling us a little bit about yourself and your background.
2: My name is Pauline Clark. I am a nurse manager over at Spalding Hospital, Cambridge. I manage the traumatic brain injury and the complex medical unit. I have been a nurse for just about 15 years. Maybe. Yeah. 15? Yeah. 15. years. Just a little bit under 15 years. Sometimes I have to do the math, but I've been at Spalding, Cambridge seven years. So I was originally um, in the business sector, working in banking, and when my children came along, that schedule didn't really work as well with the with young children. So I went back to school, and luckily I had enough credit, so it didn't take me forever to start over. And went back to nursing school primarily to be able to for the schedule. I was totally convinced that it was going to be temporary, and I was gonna go back into the business sector of, of life. Um, didn't intend to love nursing as much as I I do. And here I am 15 years later, just loving the nursing career and a lot of aspects of the nursing career. Obviously, I'm not at the bedside anymore. I'm more on the leadership side. So that's kind of my trajectory into being where I am today.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that story. Really You're fascinating welcome. and really uh, awesome to hear your journey and how you ended up at Spalding and the IHP. Can you tell us a little bit about your study and what the overall objectives were? So my study captured
2: the lived experience of the multidisciplinary staff that cared for COVID-19 patients. When the pandemic came about and uh, everyone, every hospital was trying to figure out, you know what what, you know, they could do once these patients started coming in fast and furious. Falling Cambridge is the the long-term acute care branch of um, the MGB network, and so, you know, we were called upon to, to help out, you know, how could we um, lend our services to the acute cares, and so we decided to close down some of our units and just take um, COVID patients, which would then free up the ICU, free up um, the acute care setting and just give them more room to care for the patients who were more acute, who were just coming in through the, the ED and needed the proning and all of that. So that was kind of how the project came about. It was, you know, it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to write about for my project. So this just kind of came on the scene and um, I just took a totally different trajectory to doing this research study.
1: It was really compelling to read your paper and hear about your story and the story of all of the participants that you interviewed for the study. Before we get into all of the details of the study, I wanted to have you um, maybe introduce our listeners to the Spaulding organization for those who may not be familiar with it. Spaulding
2: Rehab is a number two rehab hospital in the country, which is is really a great honor to the work that we do in getting people back to their normal or to their new normal. My facility, the facility that I work in, in Cambridge, we are in the Cambridge location and uh, we are the long-term acute care division of both the Spalding Network and the MGB Network. I'm hoping that people will learn from this program um, about LTACs because a lot of people sometimes wonder what, what LTAC is it a nursing home? Is it a hospital? and uh, it's a long-term acute care hospital. So we're a specialty hospital. The patients that we see for the most part are are the the most complicated so, it's not your typical patient who just come into the hospital for abdominal pain or a headache that, that won't go away for two days. This is patients who have, may have come in for the abdominal pain and discovered that they had appendicitis or something, and they go to the OR, and then after the OR, they develop you know, an ileus complications, and it, it, something simple may turn into something big. So these patients are, are those who, in order for them to qualify to come to us, they have to have spent at least three days in an ICU. Therefore, it's those patients who are very debilitated, very complicated. one thing just you know spiral into something worse. And so by the time they come to us, they're you know they just need a lot of nursing care, they need a lot of physician care, and they need a whole lot of therapy. And so our facility here at Cambridge, we we take on a multidisciplinary approach. So we take these patients and physicians, case managers, therapists, everybody just work collaboratively to get the patient to the next level. LTAC hospitals are sometimes overlooked for the work that, that they do, but it, it's really intense. It's a lot of work. It sometimes gets very stressful, but it's very, very satisfying because you see those patients come in and they, you know, they can't sit up in bed and they go from sitting up in bed, sitting up at the bedside. Next thing you know, they're walking to the door and then they're walking to the gym and then they're walking out of the building. So that's a little, a little bit of what we do, a little bit of the hard work that we put in. And if I were to say anything about LTAC that I would like the public to know is that long-term acute care hospitals and not nursing homes. We're hospitals and the long-term in front of our name come in because we get to keep our patients for a longer period of time. The patient may have been in um, the ICU over at Mass General and they still need that, you know, in nursing. They still need the wound care. They still need the high-risk cardiac drips. They still need antibiotics. They still need a lot of that stuff. But from an insurance standpoint, Mass General will get paid to keep them for, for any long period of time. So then they come to us and we just take on all of the stuff that they, they, they need and just continue that until we can move them to the next level, whether it be going home or going to a skilled nursing facility, or sometimes they have to bounce back to the acute for ICU for a higher level of care. But that's, that's some of the great work that we do in the LTAC setting. So, yeah. Sorry for wrapping, uh,
0: but- <laughs> no, no, that was so good. I, that you just reminded me of something that I actually haven't thought about in a long time. I'm gonna like drop a personal story real quick. Many, many years ago, when I was in middle school, um, my grandfather his aorta burst. Yeah, and he went. He got surgery. He ended up from our hometown hospital was moved to MGH, mm-hmm. and after that, ha- he had to get a couple extra surgeries. And then the next step was long-term acute care. It wasn't Spalding specifically. It was a, a place closer to um, home, mm-hmm. but the weeks that he spent there, um, just unbelievable what they were able to do for him. And this was, I'm talking 20 or so years ago, thinking how far we've come technology-wise in 20 years. But even back then, they were able to, he he was able to walk. I mean, they thought he went from, we thought he was going to die mm-hmm. to he was able to walk and talk and Lead an almost normal life for a few more years. So long-term acute care is just—it's uh, so important, and and the work that you do is amazing. So thank you so much for telling us all of that. I think it's also incredible to think you already—you and your your team already work so hard and do such great work—and then on top of that, you were asked now to to take in some COVID patients. Yeah, I'm curious. So because you you know you had a little—you did allude to having to change the topic of your project when COVID started. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, maybe you, you could have interviewed patients. There's a lot of different ways you could have taken it. So I'm curious why you decided to focus on your unit specifically and ask your staff about their experience.
2: So my, I managed the two units on the fourth floor. And when the decision was made from senior leadership that um, Spalding Hospital Cambridge would um, contribute to the network in caring for COVID-19 patients, the decision was made to first convert one of my units on the fourth floor. So it was originally the complex medical unit. So that was the first unit that was converted to COVID-19. When the decision was, was made, there was a lot of you know, anxiety, like the staff were concerned. Um, they were like, oh my God, why are they doing this to us? This is so terrible we're going to have to take care of these patients. How are we going to bring this back home? We we can't go home. And and so from the concerns of the staff and their anxieties, just let me think that there was actually something there. The patients were already had the virus and we know all about that. And there was so little known about the virus. It was really hard, you know, as a student per se, to really take on the virus and really do anything with it because There was so little that was known at the time. So I I just thought that, you know, with the help of my advisor, that maybe just talking to the staff, hearing what their concerns were, because as the leader of the unit, my biggest concern, even more than the patients coming into our building, was what is this going to do to my staff? At the end of this, am I going to still have staff beside me working in the building? And so that was kind of where the, the whole thought process of, OK, let's hear how the staff felt about, you know, becoming a COVID unit from beginning to the middle and to the end. And how did they really, you know, react with patients and, and what did this do for them and, and how, how did they come out in the end? So that was kind of how it, you know, kind of stemmed into the project that it that it became.
1: While you were just speaking, I really um, was thinking a lot about the title of your your piece. Your title is A Chronicle of Healthcare Workers on the Fourth Floor of Spalding Hospital, Cambridge. And so just thinking about this idea of what a chronicle means it means this like moment in time and mm-hmm. and hearing you speak about how it was really important that you supported your staff and also heard their perspectives during this really unprecedented moment in time mm-hmm. um of healthcare so you were able to get that information immediately but i think what is so um important about this and and why i love that you titled it this moment in time is because a lot has changed since the initial shift mm-hmm. And your ability to, you know, be so courageous and not only shift to this, these changes, but also make sure you were documenting all this information is really, really important just for the future of healthcare and future pandemics and future immediate emergency shifts. And so I I really, I just, I really appreciate that you've done this. And I I can't wait to discuss more with you and Amanda about all of the information that you got from your employees. The
2: project, I think, you know it took on a different perspective it it looks at because a lot of a lot of you, when you turn the news on it's about okay this many patients died and this is what the patients are going through and this is what the virus does and you know healthcare workers are heroes and and so you hear all of that but okay how are they heroes what are they feeling while they're going through this you know so It's like, okay, you put your scrubs on and you go to work and people see you going to work and, and you get all the accolades for being heroes. But when you're in the trenches and when you're really with the patient, you know, how, how are you really coming out as a hero? So I thought it was a good, the the project was a good way to actually get the perspective of, you know, the real in-depth perspective of the staff how did you feel when you went into the room for that very first time? How, you know, those kind of perspective. And I felt that that was important and you didn't really hear a lot of that on the news and you didn't see a lot of that on the news. You just see that, okay, people are doing the work, but that individual perspective was not widely represented.
0: I'm so glad that you said that. I was, I was going to ask you, um, you know, why go with qualitative over quantitative, right? Because it it would be so easy to send out a survey. Did you feel supported by management on a scale of one to five? But you went the much more time consuming qualitative route, but you got such rich, complex data from that. And we'll get into more of the specifics of that in a second. But yeah, this project is a prime example of what qualitative research
1: can do that quantitative research
0: can't really do. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, just that quote in the section about the initial reactions from staff I think is really telling and salient. Uh, the initial reactions of staff ranged from anxious, worried, scared, risky, nervous, confused, stressful, apprehensive, overwhelming, frightful, shocked, feared for their lives. I think all of those things um, really kind of put into perspective how, how overwhelming this was for them and still making sure that they were implementing really effective care. Mm -hmm. Um, I noticed the social aspect, the teamwork aspect, when people felt supported, that really helped them demonstrate some resilience. But I would love to hear a little bit about the mental health aspect.
2: So one of the things that really stood out for me and had me thinking a lot, even days after I had the interviews, Uh, When I interviewed the therapy group, I did them as a group and there was one therapist who um, said, you know, "I, I have never cried so much in my life. And I would go home and I just couldn't talk to anybody and I would just curl up into a ball and just cry. And even now just thinking about it sometime, my heart just went out to her because, you know, every day we came in here and it was going into the rooms and treating the patients and they're coughing in your face and you know, all of that stuff because the patients they're sick and if they can't, you you know, your lungs are under attack and you need to cough. So you're gonna cough and and the therapist is there and the nurse is there and so, you know, all of these things. So the mental health piece of it, that was kind of the the biggest one that actually just threw me a lot. There was also um, things that probably weren't even in the paper where people you know told me that okay I had stopped taking my anxiety medication for a while I had weaned myself off and I was doing so great but doing this work I had to go back on my meds um, couldn't go out so that affected my affected my moods so, you know I so so there was a lot of little, Subtle changes in in people's mental health. Even people who didn't necessarily have mental health issues were like, "Oh my God, I, I I now understand what anxiety feels like. I now understand what it's like to be deathly afraid of some things." I think that was very profound for for a lot of a lot of people. And yet, there was that sense of responsibility, that sense of, okay, we're healthcare workers, so regardless of how we're feeling, we don't have the right, for lack of a better term, to say, I'm not taking care of these, this patient, because after all, you're a nurse, you're a therapist, you're a PCA. You can't just say, I'm not doing it. Some people didn't say that, but the majority of people were like, this is what we went to school for this is the nature of our profession so regardless of how we came out of this we have to do it i think mostly everybody's mental health was affected in one way or the other whether it's themselves or whether it's dealing with their anxious loved ones when they go home or supporting your teammates when they get anxious or when they were afraid
0: I can't help but wonder if in 10 years, we'll look back and say, you know, COVID-19 was a turning point on when Americans started to take mental health more seriously, you know, Mm -hmm. hopefully get better federal funding that comes out of this for mental health programs that we learn to, you know, take care of our mental health better, whatever it might be. I just think that for providers and patients, the impact of the past year is just like something we've never seen before. You got to wonder if things will finally start to change. I sure hope so. I sure hope so.
2: (laughs) Because I think um, a lot of people develop mental health issues from this pandemic, because people recognize, now recognize fear that they didn't even know that it would affect them that way. So so I'm hoping that it it will be something good that comes out of this nightmare. Yeah.
0: So just to give our listeners some idea of the uh, interview questions that you asked your participants, which I thought were excellent, by the Mm way. Um, You asked them about the initial transition when the unit shifted over to start accepting COVID patients. You asked them about their experience caring for the COVID-19 patients. Um, And you also asked them questions that had them personally reflect on the experience as a whole. And I'm just curious, Pauline, how did your own experience working through the pandemic inform the way you developed the interview questions? For me,
2: as the, you know, I wasn't a direct caregiver in the sense that I was in there, you know, medicating patients, but I was a leader, I, I was the uh, manager of the unit. And so I had to be that support. I had to bring calm when everybody else was a little frantic, you know, I had to reassure people. And when the unit, when I, I first heard as the manager of the unit that this is, we're gonna use your unit, you know, uh, as, a, as a COVID unit. And my first reaction was, oh my God, I'm going to lose all my staff. At the end of this, everybody is going to say, um, here's my resignation. I refused to work on a COVID-19 unit. And I, I I was nervous that I was going to be left alone. And so when the announcement was made and I had senior leadership come up and we had a meeting, and at the end of the meeting when the staff all start coming in and said, you know what? I'm worried, but if you're going to be here, I'm going to be here. 90, I want to say 98% of my staff stayed. Even even older nurses and PCAs who, you know, they it was on the news that if you're over a certain age, you know, you're more vulnerable. Those staff members were like, this is our unit, we're going to stay, and they did. That was profound for me with this transition and and doing this work.
0: I think our listeners might be astonished to learn that you actually got 56 people, 56 of your staff to participate in this project. So my first question is, why do you think so many of them um, agreed to be interviewed?
2: honestly, I had to turn people away because, uh, and selfishly, selfishly, I started saying, oh, I can't do any more interviews because I knew that when it was time to really disseminate the information, it was going to be a nightmare. And it so happened that during the time that I was conducting the interview, I was also teaching um, a clinical group for the IHP because, you know, the poor students was just so behind and we jumped in and this, despite all of this stuff that was going on, we jumped in and we took a clinical group. And I was, I was doing school, I was, I was working on the COVID-19 unit, and all of that stuff was happening. And I was like, OK, let me just teach this clinical group. So I, I took on a lot. But anyways, um, I had this clinical group. And uh, two of the students in the group, in the, they're in the DEN program. And they were researchers before they went into this program. And so I was telling them about it. And I remember one of them looking at the pile of um, papers after I had the, um, the, the interviews transcribed. And she was like, oh my God, that is a nightmare. That's a lot of work. And I was like, because I, so, I was so into the interviews and getting into it and hearing people's perspective that I wasn't really thinking of, oh my God, I, I'm going to have to disseminate and transcribe and really go back through all of that. But when she looked at the pile and she said, oh, I feel so bad for you. I was like, okay, I have to cut it off right here. I cannot interview anybody else. So I was turning people away like a couple of weeks, even a couple of weeks after. They were like, oh, do you still need someone? And I was like, no, no thanks, no thanks. So it, it wasn't hard at all to get people to to actually participate because I feel like towards that time, people gotten so used to it and and, you know really embraced that this was the work that we were doing they just wanted to kind of talk about it and i feel like that was kind of an outlet for them as well so it wasn't it wasn't difficult at all to get people to to really talk about it or to interview
0: and i mean i haven't met any of your staff but i i assume it has to also be a testament to you as a leader that they trusted you to tell you this information some of which was very personal and they entrusted you to to listen and to do the right thing with that information so um, it's just so impressive that, that they didn't even bat an eyelash at participating that's that's awesome no so since you were talking a little bit about how much data you did collect i'm wondering when it did come time to analyze and synthesize it what was your approach to analyzing and synthesizing all of that data
2: so I had everything recorded. So the interviews, I, I was writing and recording at the same time. Um, and I actually didn't really, you're recording it and you're enjoying the interviews, you know, this the back and forth with people. And I never really thought about how much work it was going to be until the student actually said that. And then I started thinking about it. How am I going to actually get this done? And so I, you somebody you know i was talking to one of my colleagues and she's like oh you know there are all these programs that you can kind of plug it into and and just get it transcribed and get it on paper so i was able to do that i was able to get it transcribed uh, like that but i also was you know very intrigued and wanted to listen again to what people had to say so you know i would bring it in the car and i would just play the the recordings while I was driving home so that I could really get it. I didn't want to miss anything. I didn't want to not give credence to some of the important things that were said and and people's opinions and people's thoughts. So in looking for themes, uh, there were so many themes that could have come out of the project that could have come out of what I learned from the interviews but I felt like those the five themes that I picked out were you know were really profound and gave some semblance of what people actually were feeling throughout the process.
0: Yeah, so as you said there were a number of themes that ultimately emerged from the data. Rachel had talked about one of them a little bit earlier, the the theme of initial reactions. And then Mm -hmm. direct patient care was another theme that you identified. Um, Yeah. As I was reading the paper, the way I understood this theme is that there were some highs regarding direct patient care throughout the pandemic, Mm -hmm. but there were also some lows. Highs were things like that first wave of patients that came in and how they were not, they were actually not as dependent on your staff as what your staff were normally accustomed to the patients that they usually got. But then, you know, the lows did set in when the unit started getting patients on ventilators mm-hmm. um, and staff became understandably concerned about their risk of infection. So could you tell us more about what you learned about staff experiences um, of caring for the patients?
2: You know, like I mentioned in the beginning about LTACs and and the type of patients that we see, and the two units that were converted was, um, you know, the traumatic brain injury patient. And if anyone's familiar with, you know, a traumatic brain injury patient, those are patients that are 100% dependent on staff to, you know, to decide whether, okay, is this patient, on, this patient's uncomfortable. I can tell they're uncomfortable based on, you know, facial expression or, you know, however they manifest their d- discomfort. And then it's the staff member that has to decide, okay, is it pain? Is it, are they wet? Is it, are they just in one position for too long of a time and I need to change their position? So, so there was that population. And then there was a complex medical patients that just have so many things wrong with them that you never know which disease process you're chasing. And so we were familiar with all of this hard work of taking care of patients and, and being so unsure of what your day is going to look like. And, and when we started getting the, the COVID 19 patients in the beginning, it was okay, this patient actually pressed the call light and told me that they want water. You know, this patient can actually feed herself. This patient can get up and walk to the bathroom. So, in the beginning, it was like, oh, okay, we can do this. This is all right. You know, they have a virus, but they're, they can walk and talk. The amount of work that I have to do for them is minimal the bigger piece is just re- really making sure that I'm protected when I go in to take care of this patient. So, so in the beginning, that was kind of like, all right, we can do this. You know, we, we, We're over the initial shock of, okay, these patients aren't monsters. So it's going to eat us alive. So now as the patients start getting sicker and the ICU stays start getting longer and they start now developing wounds and they can't wean them off the vents and then Okay, now we have to go back into a little bit of an LTAC mode here. So we're gonna have to start taking a, a COVID patient that has wounds. Now we're gonna have to tar- start taking a COVID patient that is really on a ventilator. And if they're on a ventilator, it means that they have an artificial airway and there is no control. You know, you can't control that cough. It's just gonna, it's just gonna come out how so so it was another level of of it was like okay we get over the initial reaction of the patients that were walking and talking now the patients on event that we don't have any way of really they don't have any way of controlling their um you know their secretions so how are we going to deal with that that was a whole nother level of of fear so um we did come up with ways to to control that by um using a closed system so that no air or no secretion was escaping because everything was contained. But that was a shocker for staff. There was so much unknown, you know, and and this is one of the reasons why it's also really good that this paper came out the way it came out because there was so much unknown. And in the beginning, we were told, all right, you're, we're only going to have the, you know, walkie-talkies. We weren't going to have any patients with a trach, but then a few months in, oh well, guess what? We have to now start taking patients with trach. So it was like we got a little comfortable, and then we ha- we got all hyped up again, and and so it was it was a lot of highs and a lot of lows and a lot of knowns, a lot of unknowns. Um, more so than they were known and it was we were just learning things and everything was changing you know this time it was we're we're ninety five, and the next time it was no you don't need it and you know stuff like that so it was it was just all over the place because there was so little that was actually that was really known and um, from the network level things were coming through emails but a lot of it didn't really pertain to us here it was more like ICU stuff. So there was a lot of a lot of confusion, a lot of, you know, just things that people were, you know, just uncertainties that was hard to, you know, wrap our minds around.
0: In addition to uncertainty, definitely being um kind of an invisible barrier to doing your work well, they also, your staff also told you about many other barriers to care. And something that surprised me was that many of the barriers were things that were actually meant to facilitate care. So you think about PPE, personal protective equipment, that's meant to protect the staff, but at the same time it made their jobs harder. Um, then you and you talked a little bit about uh, iPads, which your staff were yeah. using to communicate with patients, but those also had drawbacks as well. So. Um, can you talk more about the barriers that your staff encountered throughout this process?
2: When I asked about barriers of care, the first thing that um, people talked about was the, the discomfort of wearing full PPE to care for these patients. So it's an N95, it's a face shield, it's gown, it's gloving, it's making sure you're putting everything on correctly to go into the room and make sure that when you come out, you're doffing all that stuff appropriately. A huge, huge piece that um, staff was frustrated about was the, the fogging up of the goggles and the face shield. And um, I remember one nurse was saying, you know, I went in to put an IV in a patient and I was sweating. I was so hot and I couldn't see anything and I was feeling for the vein. And I, she was like, I do not know how that IV went in because I did it blindly. I was, I was sweating, it was dripping down my eyes and my <laughs> oh my goggles was all fogged up. So I basically just inserted that IV just by feeling for the vein. So that speaks a lot about you know skill but it, it also just shows how resilient nurses, um, nurses are in, in what they do. But it was a huge barrier because what if you didn't get that IV? The patient needs the fluid, you know? So it was, okay, you didn't get it. Now you have to go back outside, make sure you get, you know, calm down some, get the sweat off, and then you'd have to go back in and do it again. So that was a barrier, another barrier, Um, that had to do with PPE was the time that it took. So with a regular patient, you just go in the room and you just do your business and you come out. With the the COVID-19 patients, you had to get to the door. You have to make sure you have everything. You have to put on your PPE a certain way and make sure you have everything on. And then you have to go in. And you have to rely a lot on other people. As one of the other themes that came out was teamwork. It's like, you're into in a room and and you realize oh my god the patient You brought all the stuff that the patient needs for their five o'clock six o'clock whatever time meds and then you go in and and they're like oh you know i have a headache can i get some tylenol and you're like oh my god i didn't bring any tylenol um so it's like now (laughs) coming to the door and getting someone to run to the omni cell and bring you tylenol so it was a lot of that those were barriers to care because you couldn't readily do the things that you normally would in caring for the patients. Another thing that staff thought was a, a huge barrier to care was really not being able to spend as much time as they wanted to spend in the room. Not being able to to smile at your patient because you're all gown up. All they can see is just your eyeballs. That was a barrier. And there were quite a few things that, you know, it was just frustrating but it was necessary for them to do in terms of giving care to patients.
0: I'm really glad you mentioned the teamwork theme. I felt like that was one of the uh, uplifting themes that you found. As you said earlier, you know, your your staff all come from a variety of health professions. There are nurses, occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech language pathologists, personal care assistants, and they were already working together interprofessionally every day. But what I got from your paper was it sounded to me like their teamwork reached a new level when caring for COVID-19 patients. So could you tell us um, a little bit more about the teamwork things they experienced?
2: Yeah, the teamwork was, and just to put a little why this was so profound for me and why I had to pull this out of the project. um, Before I decided to write about the COVID-19, how the COVID-19 pandemic affected my staff, my project was going to be something around nurse bullying. Because on one of my units, the teamwork just wasn't as strong as I wanted it to be. And I was on a mission to really improve that. I was getting ready to go down and dirty, to come up with an educational program and to just find something to help to bring the team together. And then this happened. And it was just amazing to see how everybody was just so invested in the safety of each other. I remember, you know, I was out for a little bit because I I had gotten sick with COVID earlier. Or as a matter of fact, the same day that um, my unit opened, I was diagnosed with, um, I tested positive. So I was also leading, managing from home while struggling with, while, while recovering from the virus as well. So I was doing a lot of huddles facetime with the staff a lot of the ipad huddles and all of that stuff while i was recovering but i remember when i came back into the hospital i was asked to go see a patient and i i'm getting all of my stuff on and i'm going in and i must have forgotten to put something on or in one order or something and i was about to go into the room and had my hand on the door and somebody was like no you can't go in you didn't put your whatever it was on You have to do this first. And it was just amazing how everybody was just so keen on making sure that everyone was doing the right thing. And I remember in the interviews, one of the PCA said, you know what? My safety was not just based on what I did. It was also based on what my teammates did. So if my teammates were careful in doing everything right, I could be more confident that I was gonna be okay because they're the ones that I'm really close to. You know, they're the ones that are out here outside of the patient's room with me. Because you can prepare to go into the patient's room, but you have your guard down just a little bit when you're amongst your peers. And so she was like, yeah, I had to make sure that everybody was doing what they were supposed to do because that was what my life and my family and my children's life depended on how well my teammates performed and what they did to protect themselves because in essence it protects me as well teamwork also was not just within the nursing discipline per se it was therapists and nurses working together collaboratively it was you know the case managers they were all working remote for the most part. So they were reliant on the iPad. So it was, okay, nurses go in the room and they're making sure that the iPad is plugged in, the iPad's facing the patient, troubleshooting it if it wasn't working right. So it it was every discipline kind of working hand in hand. And I think as a result of doing this work, the team just got so much stronger. Some of them couldn't go home and talk about this because... They were downplaying it when they were home because they know family members were really worried. So they would downplay it when they were home and they would act like, oh, everything is all fine at work. But when they came here, they could break down. They could really rely on people to talk about what they were going through. And the team just comes together and, and became such a force because everyone was kind of sharing the same experience. And um, they could let their guard down. You know, they won't tie it at home, but at work they could just sit in the break room and just vent. So that was a good outcome from dealing with the pandemic.
1: So another theme that came up for participants was whether or not they felt uh, supported by hospital leadership and administration. Um, which I can imagine can be a sensitive topic for employees talking to a manager or someone in a leadership position. So what did they specifically tell you and how did did you ensure that they were answering your questions authentically and truthfully?
2: So at first I I was nervous to ask the question because I know there was a lot of frustrations. When it all came down to it, I, I think the hospital leadership did did a good job in trying to facilitate a lot of the needs that people a lot of the demands that the staff had and um, they would bring their concerns to me and i would advocate for for example one of the things that staff was concerned about is okay what am i going to do with my clothes when i when i work you know i can't wear that same clothes home and the hospital provided you know laundry bags that. You know you could just put the clothes in then you could just throw the entire bag in the washing machine so we got that we got break rooms that was just for the the staff who were taking care of COVID-19 patients we provided them with shower facilities where they could go and take a shower before they went home if they wanted to and a lot of staff took advantage of that which i think was kind of unique to to our setting i, I don't know that there are other hospitals who actually Made it so that staff could go and shower before they went home, maybe I don't know so despite some of the frustrations that staff had I think they looked at some of the little things that made. A huge difference, there were some people who said, you know I I just feel like there wasn't enough transparency, there was one person that said, I feel like you know we were in the trenches but we didn't really see senior leadership walking through the unit but everyone was like, you know what, when it comes to like unit leadership, like you were there for us, even when you weren't in the building, you were there for us, we knew where to find you. So I think the fact that they had their immediate supervisors, the therapists say the same thing, I think the fact that they had their immediate supervisors there for them, triaging their, their concerns and bringing it forward and advocating for them made it you know, it didn't seem like, okay, they were left alone. But there were some people that actually said, you know, something about transparency and, you know, some people are saying, okay, we think we should have gotten money and, you know, stuff like that. But for the most part, I felt like people were under the, you know, the understanding that, you know what, they can't tell us what they don't know. And there was so much unknown with some, some people actually said that, and I put that in the paper that I feel like they didn't know. And if they didn't know, they can't tell us. And there were so much changes and so much unknown. So it's hard to expect more from um, senior leadership or from leadership as a whole if, um, if they don't know. So I think, I think there was that underlying understanding that there wasn't enough known to really facilitate all of what people wanted.
1: I think that concepts that, or that idea that in the face of so much unknown, everyone still showed up and really came together as a team, um, that's really, really powerful. And like you mentioned earlier, the larger public has heard a lot of these stories of healthcare workers as heroes and making these really personal sacrifices on the front lines to save lives and keep people healthy. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of these stories are, you know, really heartbreaking. And for your employees at Spalding Hospital Cambridge on the fourth floor, it was no different. So can you tell us what your participants shared with you regarding like some of the personal sacrifices that they made to continue doing this work in the face of so much unknown?
2: I think the biggest sacrifice that the employees, most of the employees made was just the separation from their loved ones. Just about everybody spent some time away from home because, number one, they were were afraid to bring anything home to their loved ones because people were hearing that, okay, the virus will stick to your clothes, it will stick in your hair, you know, and people were like, oh, God, I'm going to bring it home. So a lot of people opted to not go home. I remember one nurse saying, you know, I live, I could, I could literally look at my parents' house and I couldn't go see them. So they were like counting the days and the weeks that they didn't see their loved ones. One participant said, oh, I haven't seen my boyfriend for like 52 days or something like that. It's somewhere in that ballpark. So that separation from their loved ones. They didn't see their friends. And, you know, one nurse was like, honestly, I'm going to tell you that I drink, but I've never drank so much um, in my life. And part of it was because I was at home alone and I was lonely. So I was just trying to find ways to cope. So that was a huge personal sacrifice to really now turn to alcohol because, you don't have friends. And she was someone who, who loves people, who just loves to be around people. Some of it was also not being able to exercise because the gyms were closed. Um, so the weight gain, the mental health stuff, the sleeping in some, on somebody's couch. One nurse was sleeping in a blow up bed in his parents' living room because he couldn't be with his wife because she has asthma there was quite a few things that people either gave up or turned to or, you know, had to live without as a result of caring for COVID-19 patients. And a lot of it had to do with keeping their loved ones safe.
0: Two thoughts. First off, you know, hearing, I, even know, I read that in the paper, hearing you say it again, it just makes it all the more infuriating that there were people who mm-hmm. would not even do the simplest thing, like wear a mask. Yeah. And then secondly, to me and, and probably to Rachel as well, to us, it's so obvious why people were calling, you know, you and your team heroes. Like you were running towards the fire when everyone else was running away. You were delivering patient care, even when you, every day you had to deal with just frustration mm-hmm. upon frustration with things like the PPE. In addition to that, you, you, you had to keep yourself away from your loved ones and and all the other sacrifices that you listed Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: you asked your staff you said you know people are calling you heroes do you feel like a hero Mm -hmm. can you tell us what they said to you
2: so majority of the pay of the participants were like no no we were just doing our job this was i'm a nurse i was being a nurse you know, I'm a PCA. I was being a PCA. I was a therapist. I'm a therapist. I was being a therapist. And so they were like, no, we're just doing our job. But then there were, you know, the few people that were like, you know what, well, it's about time we get a little recognition as nurses. There's about time. It's about time that people actually take stock of what we, what we do every day because we do this every day, regardless of whether it's COVID or not. You know, we're still taking care of patients in the ICU. We're still doing wound care. We're still caring for patients with other diseases that needs our nursing care. So this was just another disease process that we were taking care of. And so, thank you for recognizing us for for the work that we're doing. Yes, I do consider myself a hero because. Um, not everybody is out there doing this. So this is unusual. And I, I think, you know, part of being a hero is people who just do unusual things, you know? So some people were like, yes, I, I'm a hero. I, I I put my life at risk to, um, to save somebody else's or to help somebody else. But for the most part, a lot of people were very humble about it and felt like it was just a part of your everyday life. It's just nursing. It's just, it's just what we do in healthcare. So, so that was that was interesting to hear as well.
0: Well, even if they don't see themselves as heroes, I can say that you know myself, Rachel's nodding. So many people out there were just so. We have so much gratitude for for what you and your team did the past year to to keep people healthy, Pauline. What would you want other healthcare workers and leaders to know about the experiences of the fourth floor staff of Spalding Cambridge last year?
2: I would want people to know number 1 for I, I just have to give kudos to to my staff and 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 all of the the participants of well mostly all of the people who work on the unit because you know, I would just want them to know that if this wasn't something, it wasn't a minor thing that you did. It was it was huge. And um, putting your life at risk to do this work, it, it, it was amazing. And how gracefully they did it in terms of, you know, coming to work every day and, and getting it done. And people were still working overtime, even during this time. So you have to kind of think about, you know, stuff like that. So I first want to just throw my staff out there and said, amazing work, amazing work. And, and thank you for um, sticking with me and, and staying the course and, and getting us through to the end of that surge. I mean, the the unit is still a COVID-19 unit. We, we still get your COVID-19 patients here or there. We don't have any now, but we've seen them since March um, of, of 2020 up until i don't know maybe a week ago we had COVID patients so it's not over we are still seeing those i would want the public to know that uh, we do amazing work here at Spaulding hospital cambridge as a whole and i have to say we do amazing work on the fourth floor so that is something that would be uh, great for the public to know i feel like our patients were better for coming here It was wonderful to see, you know, we had a patient who she had COVID, they had to put her in a coma, take the baby from her, and she came to us. having never met her baby and Um, just meeting her baby for the first time when she was discharged from here. We had this huge celebration downstairs where we, you know, we sang and we had the baby come and it was, it was amazing. I think just, just for people to know that, you know, we are here and and we exist and we have some amazing people here. and We do amazing work here in, in this facility. That would be what I would like to know
0: about us. So Pauline, we've talked a lot about your project and about your staff. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about you now. I'm curious what you think was the biggest challenge that you faced while working on this project and how did you overcome it?
2: Uh, working on this project, <laughs> I think maybe it was my anxiety um, just to be a student in a very intense program, you know, just. Thinking, okay, I have to do this project while doing this job, while managing more than a hundred employees and making sure that I actually graduate. So there was a lot of little aspects that were, you know, front and foremost in my mind. I would say really transcribing the information and you know, getting it from recording to paper reading it over and over again, um, picking out the themes and then putting it together. Um, So it was also helpful to have the IHP provided the support of, you know, I had my advisor that I could just bounce things off of and, you know, I'd write something and I'd send in and said, okay, what do you think about this? So there was also that support piece. But I, I have to say also one of the things that made it a little easier was the fact that it was familiar, it was a familiar environment and it was really the experience as opposed to writing about something that's so abstract, you know, or, or researching something that was a little more concrete, like maybe a, a disease process or how somebody, you know, so, so it, was, it was kind of a unique project, but it was also personal. So that made it a little easier to do it because it was not just the staff, it was also my experience. It was also what I was living every day. So getting the the information off the tape and putting it together and really making it so that someone can actually read the paper and say, oh, okay, this is what happened. This is how people feel. That was good, but it was also personal for me. So it made it a little easier to put it together and, and it made a lot of sense in my head.
0: Have you noticed um, your findings from this project and the work that you've done, has has it impacted your work as a nurse manager at all? I believe so. I believe
2: it impacts my role as a nurse manager in that I have not a different perspective per se, but I have a greater appreciation for uh, my staff's resilience. So if someone comes to me now, if I think about it from a scheduling standpoint, and somebody comes to me and say, Oh, you know what, Pauline, I think I need a mental health day. Sometimes before this I would say, What is that, you know, and I'm, I'm a little older, I'm not a millennial. so. Um, I would say, whoa, whoa, what is that? What, is, what are people talking about? What is a mental health day? So now my perspective has changed. So if someone comes and say, you know what, I I just worked the last three shifts in a row, and you know, is it okay for me to have a mental health day? I'm like, yeah you can have let me just see if i can facilitate it and i can switch some things around and and yeah you can have a mental health day so i think I, I think my perspective has changed a little bit in terms of that where i can i can appreciate that somebody needs a mental health day you know having gone through all of this and and it also gives me a greater appreciation for my profession as a nurse that in the midst of the worst but we are still going to do the job that we were trained to do. And, and I think uh, I speak for a lot of nurses or healthcare providers out there that, you know, we didn't go to school to be a healthcare provider just to say we're a healthcare provider. We went into it and really take it seriously enough to say, okay, this is what we're faced with in this season. So we are going to just take it on head first and just, and just deal with it. So I think I think those are some of the perspective as a nurse manager that I, I, I've taken away from the project and writing this paper.
0: That open-mindedness that you mentioned, I think that we've heard that, I think from a few people this season talking to it. And so it's just, uh, I didn't necessarily think that that would be sort of an unexpected outcome of working on a research project, but it definitely is. And I, I you would hope, I think also, that the past year people have been much more open-minded just because there's so much change, so many things happening. um, You almost had to be open-minded just to get through 2020. Um, And I hope that that carries forward. I I hope that as a a country and as a culture, we hold on to that because it can be just, you know, so transformative.
2: Yeah, I also feel like, you know, with this pandemic, the healthcare, the healthcare worker population as a whole, I think we have, or if we don't, we should have a greater appreciation for each other. Sometimes there are conflicts that people, we people put aside conflicts to deal with this pandemic. And I'm just hoping that this um, pandemic and the whole experience as a whole and the healthcare worker Um, realm of life right now is that we have a greater appreciation for each other, you know, and we can actually um, take the time out to say, you know what, before this happened, I didn't like the way you walked, but now I can, (laughs) now I can watch you walk and be like, okay, well, she is walking, you know, and, and that's, that's how she walks. (laughs) For Of course, that's like a really corny example, but you kind of get what I'm saying. It's like, you, you know, you can overlook some of the little things that used to annoy you before um, and just be like, you know what, this is somebody who was by my side. You know, this is somebody that I could rely on when we were in the trenches. This is somebody that I could be in a room and just press the call line, and they would come to the door and get me that Tylenol, or they would come and, and, you know, say, you know, pass me the tray for the patient and just help me to get through what I was doing, because we did this as as a team, as opposed to me just doing it all by myself, which before the pandemic, it was like, okay, this is my patient load, I have five patients today, I have four patients today, how many patients you have, and you're like, okay, this is my assignment, I'm going to get through my assignment and I'm going to go home. It wasn't like that during the pandemic. It's like, okay, there's these patients that we all have, and we all have to care for these patients and get them, you know, get them home and get them recovered.
1: Hearing you talk about these experiences, um, and I think you did mention this word a couple minutes ago, actually, um, but this idea of resilience Mm -hmm. and in the face of something really awful and traumatic, such as this pandemic, not everyone develops PTSD or different, you know, negative effects. Mm -hmm. And the idea of resilience is what are these factors? What are these things that can help mitigate this trauma and help to bring about stronger and more effective people that following these events you know Mm -hmm. they have these new skills they have these new ideas and these new approaches to uh, working as a team delivering care etc and so i love this idea of resilience and i think it really also just kind of goes back to what you've done here with this paper and this study in these interviews is really highlight in the face of the pandemic what are the things that your team really did to um highlight what can build a resilient strong team Um, And I think that's just truly amazing.
2: Yeah, they came back every day.
1: (laughs) You know, it's like that in and of itself is
2: is resilience exemplified. You know, they got up every day and and they came back to work knowing what they were going to face. You know, it's profound because they could have done the first week be like no i'm not doing this they could have bowed out in the beginning and said, nope i'm not doing this and they come back every day and do it all over again we ended up converting four units to covid so it was first one of mine then both of mine and then when the patients were just coming fast and furious we had to convert two other units down on the second floor so we at for a long time had 80 patients every single day in this building Ongoing for months, so the fact that people got up every day and came back to work, the fact that people pick up extra shifts, the fact that people were just there for each other is is resilience and exemplified.
0: I wish we could keep talking because I'm just loving this conversation. And Pauline, your stories are so incredible. Um, but I know as a nurse manager, your time is very precious. So we have, I have just uh, two more quick questions before you go. Okay. First one is what resources would you recommend for our listeners who want to learn more about Spaulding Hospital or, you know, really anything that we've talked about today? What would you like us to link them to?
2: So there's always a the Spalding um, website. Um, just, I guess, just Google Spaulding. <laughs> I think it's SpaldingRehabilitation.org or something like that. Here in this facility in, in Cambridge, we have six units. Um, we have the Traumatic Brain Injury Unit, which is one of mine. We have the Complex Medical. We have an Oncology Unit, In-House Chemo. We have a Transplant Unit. We have a Ventilator Unit. We have a, a Cardiac Unit. So. It's just about everything that you can think of we have here.
0: Great. Yeah, we will uh, link everyone to the website in the show notes. And lastly, so one thing we've been doing this season with everybody is we're putting together a collaborative playlist. Um, And so my my question to you is, if you were to create a soundtrack for your research project, what Mm -hmm. are one to two songs that you would put on the track list?
2: Definitely, I would put on there, You Raise Me Up by Josh Groban, um, because I just felt like that kind of speak to. I mean, even though it was so hard, we still people had to really pull on their faith to really get through this. And and I know I've heard people from the interview that said, "I've never prayed so much." You know, I was outside and I was praying. Um, so there was a lot of prayer that went in. That went in. So I I I that would that would be one song. And I guess I would have to, I would have to uh, take on a little bit of Bob Marley and says, "Don't worry, because every little thing's gonna be all right." So, so I think those would be, those would be two of the songs that I would, I would definitely want to have on on my playlist. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> yes, such good songs. I love them both. Um, they will definitely be on there. Pauline, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us today about your amazing study and just everything the, the, since, since COVID started. So thank you so, so much for being here.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and thinking my project was worth, uh, worth the effort. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. And I know, technically, you finished your program, but your graduation, is, your actual graduation is coming up. So congratulations on earning your uh, your DMP. We are very, thank very you. proud of you. Congratulations.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for your help, Amanda, throughout the, <laughs> throughout the program. I, I, you know, I remember um your your words of wisdom as to you know how to write a research project and all of that i don't think i'll do another research project um, so i'm trying <laughs> to stay away from andy phillips because you talked me into one um but thank you for your help and your support also um throughout the program, what what you had to offer us was was very helpful and very profound for us. So thank you.
0: You're very welcome. It is such a pleasure for me to get to work with all the DMP students. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. So thank you. (laughs) All right. Thank you. And thank you, listener, for joining us for this episode of Evidence-Based IHP. There are many more episodes to come in season one. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any. Ask us your question, send us your feedback, or pitch an episode by emailing us at podcasts at MGHIHP.edu.
1: Evidence-Based IHP is presented by the Janice P. Bellick Library at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. It is hosted by Amanda Tarbett and Rachel Norton. Our incredible executive producer is Selena Craig.
0: We'd like to say a special thanks to George Sanchez de Lazada and MGH IHP's
1: Office of Information Technology for their technical and financial support of this project. Check the show notes for links to learn more about MGH IHP and follow us on social media.